Hello and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is Season 5, Episode 2, In This Cloth, with Lehua Uakea. Lehua Uakea is a mixed native artist originally from Hawaii. Their work revives traditional Hawaiian fiber arts that use sustainably gathered natural materials. Their work examines identity, displacement, and environmental dysfunction through a contemporary indigenous lens. Check out their beautiful work on Instagram at underscore L-E-H-U-A-U-A-K-E-A underscore. Hi, aloha kako. My name is Lehua Uakea. I use she, her, they, them pronouns. Um, I'm a mahuvahine artist from Papaiko, Hawaii, now based in Portland. And I'm a Native Hawaiian interdisciplinary artist focusing on traditional craft and bark cloth making and bringing that into a contemporary practice. I was born in Portland and raised on the big island, Mokuokeave, which is where a lot of my family still lives today and have lived for as long as we know, so many generations back. And about five or six years ago now, I was studying at PNCA and really not finding a lot of fulfillment in two-dimensional painting and drawing like I was intending to study there. And so I started bringing into play a lot of the things that I learned in my cultural upbringing back home and different ways that were traditional forms of expression in Native Hawaiian culture for generations. And so I started making ohekapala, which is carved, patterned, bamboo printing tools that are used to decorate textiles, namely bark cloth or kapa that we call in Hawaiian. And this is a practice that has been carried on for many, many generations before me, but was brought back into uh, kind of like a revival in the 70s and 80s with the uh, Hawaiian Renaissance. There have been a growing number of bark cloth makers and carvers back home that have really pushed me to pursue that in my work. Once I started doing that at PNCA, I really fell into my niche and have been there ever since. And combining that with kind of more experimental, interdisciplinary things like uh, installation or wearable garments. And combining these two things is a really powerful language for me to explore the, the concepts that I've been interested in. I mentioned earlier, I was born in Portland, but raised back home in Hawaii. And that duality and those kind of conflicting bits of my identity really became a challenge for me to navigate while I was up here going to school. I found a way to to bridge those two worlds, those two different upbringings and backgrounds and 
just even ways of thinking and community was through my work, through my art. So I've been exploring themes of mixed identity, mixed indigeneity, because I'm very ethnically mixed, coming from different parts of my family all around the world, and also how that ties into how I might view uh, contemporary political issues like climate change, all of a lot of the social justice uh, events that have been escalating throughout 2020 even, um, and down to land rights issues that we see back home like Monica and the 30 meter telescope, which is one of the biggest hot button topics that we see back home right now in terms of indigenous land sovereignty and environmental concerns and how that all relates to native Hawaiian cultural resiliency. The 30 meter telescope is an international um, divested project that has been trying to get up and running for over a decade. I want to say it's an international effort. So many different nations are being invested in this project and it's the, it would be the largest telescope in the world placed on top of Mauna Kea. And Mauna Kea is the tallest mountain in the world from the ground up, even taller than Everest. And this mountain is very sacred to my people. The mountain itself is also on top of one of the primary aquifers for the entire Mokuokiave, um, the entire big island, which is where I'm from. And so not only is this uh, project potentially desecrating land, in addition to all of the mismanagement on top of the Mona that we see with the existing telescopes. So it is not only affecting our indigenous land sovereignty, our access rights to those places, but also environmentally, we're concerned about the aquifer, how it would affect the entire water table because they will be drilling down into the Mona to construct this telescope, how it might affect indigenous or native life on top of that Mona, um, all the very uh, sensitive species that are up there because really there's a lot of um, seclusion and it hasn't been touched for the most part. And we would like to keep it that way for not only cultural reasons, but environmental reasons too. It's, it's almost impossible not to think about the future, you know? We're always thinking about the last seven generations that came before us and the next seven generations and beyond. And really what that means is how, how can we situate ourselves in this present moment, knowing where we have come from and also knowing where we can go forward as a collective. And I think in terms of indigenous resiliency, that's a critical pillar. It's a critical part of the puzzle. We can't create sustainably today if we're not thinking about tomorrow. It's, it's something that a lot of indigenous cultures have adopted and carried from Turtle Island teaching. So indigenous cultures that are native to North America, a lot of their oral tradition has talked about the seven, seven generations back and seven generations forward, just as like a, an abstract, but also not so abstract way of thinking about deep time and how we are situated within that, not, not above it or uh, exclusive of it, but within it. 
my work would not be possible today if it weren't for the kupuna and elders who brought back a lot of the cultural practices and language that I am learning and have learned up until this point. It wouldn't have been possible without the Hawaiian Renaissance in the 70s and 80s and all of the, the elders who survived colonialism, missionary teachings, and even sickness, all of those people, it wouldn't be possible for me to be here doing what I am doing now. And so what I would like to envision is for my work to kind of carry on that flame in a way for the next generations going forward, for them to understand and be able to speak their native language with their children and their grandchildren, and for the patterns that I work with to be legible and understandable to carvers and bark cloth makers and for the future generations who are either here in Portland, here back home in Hawaii or elsewhere in the world to understand that they have an impact on the environment that they directly live on. And I want to be able to do that in my very land-based practice that I carry on now. The patterns really came out of a tradition of bark cloth making, which we call kapa in Hawaiian. And kapa is usually made from the paper mulberry tree, the, the inner bark of that tree, though it can be made from other different other tree barks. But this one is very fine and prized for its, its potential to make brilliant white fibers. And so we would use these uh, bark cloth textiles which are very pliable and soft, almost like cotton, but very strong. And we would use these textiles for clothing, bedding, important ceremonial purposes, offerings. When a mother would give birth to her baby, the baby would be wrapped in kappa. And when someone would die, their bones would be wrapped in kappa as well and interred that way. So we essentially spent our whole lives in this cloth from birth until death. It is and was very critical to our identity. We would imprint them with patterns that told stories. And these different patterns ranging from simple geometric arrangements of triangles or lozenges to more um, articulated abstracted forms from nature such as sea urchins or starfish different ferns even. And these patterns would be combined and tessellated to create a language that you'd have to learn how to read and interpret, especially if you were the maker. And so we would print these with the Ohe Kapala that I mentioned earlier. We would print these patterns with those carved bamboo stamps. And uh, depending on how we use them in conjunction with each other, what colors we were printing on, even the person who would be wearing the ultimate garment, all of these factors would play into the ultimate meaning of the piece of that textile. So it really, these patterns became like a language or could take the place of what the Western concept of the Romantic alphabet is. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was sponsored by Oregon Humanities and the Oregon Community Foundation. Written and produced by me, Joni Whitworth, and edited by Ellie Swope. 
If you have any questions or feedback about the show, we're happy to hear it. Please feel free to reach out at any time at futureprairie.com or on social media at futureprairie.com.